Hi, and welcome to On and Off, our podcast covering the on-premise and off-premise beverage alcohol industry. I'm Kyle Swartz, editor of Beverage Dynamics Magazine. My usual co-host, Cheers editor Melissa Dowling, is off today, so I'm holding down the fort solo. My guest today is the incredibly talented Danny Kahn, distillation and aging operations director at Sazerac. I ran into Danny while in Kentucky last month for Bourbon Classic 2023, which is an amazing annual multi-day whiskey festival that everybody should attend. Bourbon Classic is a deep dive into all of your favorite whiskey brands. Thank you for joining me today, Danny. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Good to see you again. Absolutely. Great to see you again. We ran into a couple of times, but most notably while we were getting the behind the scenes tour at Buffalo Trace. And that was uh, what a treat to run into you there while you're uh, in the middle of your job there. Yeah, that was actually fun. I wish I had a chance to hang out with you before. You had a great tour guide in uh, Lee, um, but I was literally on my way to my office, which is right behind the fermenters, and I recognized a few faces. So um, I gave a couple little tidbits that Lee probably would not have provided, and uh, I always I always find fun in that. That was great uh, tour, and you're right. The tour guide was phenomenal. You know, something I think you said when we ran into you, and I'm I'm probably paraphrasing it. Uh, you said something to the extent that uh, distilling is not an art, it's a science. I'm just wondering if you wanted to expand upon that. Yeah, you know, we could probably uh, take up a couple hours on that topic, but it's not entirely pure science. But I have always viewed that what we do in distillation is predominantly a science. And I think that in my experience, some people uh, will often use the term arts. And I think that Example: they use the term art when they don't understand what's going on. Um, it's kind of like, you know, my computer had a glitch. So I shut it down and I turn it back on and everything works miraculously. A glitch means I don't understand what the heck just happened, but that's how I deal with it now. That being said, often people say art when they don't know what's going on, but in our world, we don't understand. That's okay. That is, that is really the fun of the process. If I have a fermentation that is not quite right, or I don't produce as much alcohol as I think I should, or if the flavor and aroma are off, um, that is not art. That is science, and it behooves us, and that is my job as master distiller, to understand what happened in our process that made a difference. And that is why I like to err on the side of science, which is really a body of knowledge and a process, but if you think about it, art is also, I think a good description is really the expression or application of human creative skills, uh, the vehicle for expression. I was thinking about this. This, this. this comes up a lot. I think maybe I make my life hard sometimes by making that statement. But I think that there is art in particular in the blending world. But if you take that definition of expression or application of creative skills, then I suppose I use science as my tools to create art. Okay, so I can change the temperature to create a certain flavor that I'm looking for. Or I can uh, mash at a different temperature to create more premium or nitrogen, which is yeast food, which is going to create flavor changes. Um, how I store barrels is creative expression. So I think that both apply. I mean, somebody once asked me, am I a scientific artist or an artistic scientist and um, that's a whole other topic but if i were to choose i would probably say an artistic scientist because i tend to err on the side of science so that's really all I mean. there's a lot of stuff 
that we strive to understand. And, um, and that's, to me, the science is the most important part of our craft. I wanted to ask you about the current state of distilling, just like from a broad standpoint. Where do you see the industry right now? Oh, my. That is a loaded question. Well, we obviously have very high hopes and high expectations as reflective of our investment. You know, we have invested, uh, we're going to be investing, I think it was $1.2 billion in distillation. And we have our second still up and running at uh, Buffalo Trace. And we are doing work at all of our distillers. So we are very high on the future. Now, it's clear that we did not make enough bourbon when we made it Mm -hmm. 8, 12, 15, 20 years ago. So we are, we are, um, we're trying to we're trying to catch up. We see a market for it, and um, our products are well received and they taste wonderful. So we certainly have very high expectations for it. You said your products are well received. That's you being very humble. Your products are feverishly tracked down by people who will follow around delivery vans and demand that people sell them product the second they hit the shelves. Um, so you know when when you, we talk about doubling a production at Buffalo Trace, that's something that could potentially and almost certainly will have a significant impact on the whiskey industry. What's your thoughts on what the doubling of production, uh, which hasn't, uh, is my understanding, is it hasn't quite taken place yet, even though that brand new, shiny, remarkably built, enormous still is up. Uh, it sounds like you guys are in the process of getting to a point where you can double production. We're, we're getting there. Uh, there, are, there are phases. The still is up and running. There has been some other infrastructure around uh, cooling capacity and utilities and dry house that are needed to get us there. Next step is going to be to add um, some different milling capacity and some fermenters, which will enable us to get there. We've got a lot of work planned for uh, this summer shutdown and some more work next year, but we're getting we're getting there for sure. Absolutely. I was going to say, we had a wonderful uh, tour through uh, that part of the plant and saw uh, just what that uh, just enormous, enormous still. What was seven feet wide, if I recall correctly? That's correct. That's incredible. What what will it mean for Buffalo Trace to double production when this does happen? I don't know if I can answer that question. Um, you know, by being here, I certainly see and learn a lot. My focus is vast majority of it is purely production. There is so much to do. We've got groups that manage our home place. We've got a sales and marketing team. And although I see some of their plans, I'm not intimately familiar with that. But I think it is safe to say that there is still a lot of runway. And as you pointed out, you know, people feverishly are looking for our products. And it's hard to find Buffalo Trace bourbon these days, let alone Eagle Rare, and let alone the B-Tacks. They just, they're just impossible to find. You know, and the funny story is that when I, when I first started working for Sazerac, I said to myself, this is great. I'm going to have access to all those bourbons that I cannot <laughs> find. Well, that that's just not true. <laughs> I, I honestly do not get any special treatment. And with the scarcity that is out there, I think it makes sense. I mean, how horrible would that be if we were giving it away to uh, people in my position and not selling it? So um, it just doesn't happen. I was disappointed by that. I will not lie. But it just doesn't happen. Sure. I mean, listen, you know, I, I, I didn't know whether or not I was going to share this story, but, you know, pr- every press trip has that one person on the pr- every alcohol press trip 
has that one person on the press trip who is not an alcohol writer um, and may or may not have done full research ahead of time. And we, we may or may not have had a member of our press team who thought they were going to find Pappy Van Winkle in the Buffalo Trace gift shop and uh, may or may not have thought that the cashier was kidding when the cashier told this gentleman that uh, there was no Pappy there. It was a it was a sight to see. I'll tell you that much. <laughs> I'm not surprised. Um, so you're talking, uh, you know, I, I asked you a question from more of a um, brand expansion standpoint. I did also want to ask you what it means to oversee the doubling of production, something of that scale. Again, I know I've said this several times now, but it really was incredible to see a still of that size. I can't say I've seen many, if any, of that size. So what? what and if I'm uh, remembering my uh, the excellent tour guy correctly, the still is an exact replica of the one that has been there at Buffalo Trace for you know many, many years. And has had a lot of uh, modifications, so we say, made to it throughout time, and all of that was replicated uh, down to the most minute details. So, what was it like overseeing something of that magnitude and also of that uh, level of uh, fine detail? It's incredible. And how, how do I articulate? Um, it is not easy making whiskey. It is a twenty-four, for the most part, seven operation, mm. and we have production upsets. We have um, bits of downtime. We have production problems. So it is our goal. You know, if we are running 24-7 and if we miss a day, for example, we had extraordinarily bad weather um, last December, which shut us down for a while. Well, that is production that we lose that we do not make up. So if we're at capacity and we lose production time, we're done. So, you know, one of the things that, that is certainly a big part of Buffalo Trace is, is I guess what I would call our vision statement. We honor tradition and embrace change. And there's an awful lot into that statement, but in terms of honoring tradition, although we are trying to make the best possible whiskey, truth be told that there are small amounts of variability. And it is our job to do the best job we can every single cook we make, every single fermenter, and every single distillation run. So there's a lot of data. There's a lot of uh, sensory science involved. There's a lot of things we do that can make sure that we're making the best possible product. And that's the stuff that I love the most and I uh, really enjoy. But then on the other side of that is the um, embrace change. And although maybe disappointing to you and your listeners, I, I cannot talk about the specific experiments that we are doing, but suffice it to say that we have you know, thousands of experiments going on, and due to the nature of our process, it takes a long time. I mean, think about all the charter own uh, products that are out there. Those all started as an experiment. And we don't know what will be released until it's done. We taste it, like it, find a place for it. So a lot of the experiments may not work. But that's how you, you know, embrace change. And that's how we find our limits. Let's let's experiment. Let's try things. So you you put all those together, and we've got a miraculous team there that works together. We have people that are working on the clock. We have people that are managing different parts of the process. So to oversee all that, you know, really is special. And um, you know, it's hard, but I really believe that I have job and uh, I did not have. Absolutely. You know, and the, the quality of the product speaks for itself. And you brought up Charter Oak, which is what I was going to bring up in terms of experimentation of Buffalo Trace. 
you know, during our uh, incredible tour, their media tour, we were very lucky to uh, taste the uh, entire lineup of the Charter Oak series with Harlan Wheatley, master distiller at Buffalo Trace, for anyone who for some reason doesn't know, uh, leading the tasting. And it really was incredible to see the level of experimentation coming out of Buffalo Trace with those. I remember my French, my favorite being the uh, French oak, which I almost kind of felt like was a cop out because that was such an easy one to pick. It's such an easy drinking one. But again, it just shows that, you know, you, you never know what you get until you experiment with it. Um, so spe uh, speaking more of production and different uh, uh, varieties of production, for anybody who doesn't know who's listening, your background is in brewing. Uh, you came from uh, Anheuser-Busch, if I'm correct, and also you uh, came through Sierra Nevada as well, which uh, I I'm an enormous craft beer nerd, and I am one of those craft beer nerds who buys a lot of Bigfoot and then ages it forever in my cellar. I actually just got my 2023 six-pack the other day. My brewer, my uh, uh, beer uh, manager friend gave me the phone call as soon as it came in. Uh, so what is it what is it like going that transition from brewing to distilling? And that's obviously a very common transition in the industry. I think, for instance, Owen over at Angel's Envy also came from a brewing background. What's it like coming from that brewing background and then entering the world of uh, distilling? Sure. And, and, and I'll also share that while I was in college at University of California, Davis, I worked in several wineries because I hmm. was just absolutely obsessed with the science and art of making alcoholic beverages. So to answer your question, transition is, um, um, it was it was really quite simple. If you think about it, beer world, and, and, and I think it's best reflected by my first day on the job as Master Distiller Park in 1792. I could walk around and understand how we drop grain, how it gets conveyed into silos, and then from silos, how it's dropped into a mill, be milled, or several quality checks and conditions there, and then we put it into a cooker, and we add water, and we heat it up, and that's where the enzymes and malt convert starch into sugar, and depending on what else you're doing, by breaking down big proteins into little proteins, breaking down beta-glucans. Um, so, so all of these things are a big part of brewing. And what's interesting in your world, there are more things that are done with enzymes my distillation because in beer you're not trying to convert all of the starch to alcohol you are doing things to retain certain levels of starch and certain proteins which enhance foam which enhance mouthfeel so there's an awful lot of learning about enzymes in the beer world that are extremely relevant to what we do in distillation um, fermentation is arguably one of the most important parts of our process it makes alcohol, but it also creates enormous amount of flavor that is important as is. But a lot of those congeners mature, age, develop, and do more complex flavors over time. So how fermentation is controlled is critical. All those things are done in beer, and it translates directly to what we do with distillation. You know, in my lifetime, we also did a lot of barrel-aged beers understanding different types of wood, different types of seasoning, uh, toast levels, char levels. It, it's a very logical progression. And, and there's two expressions I like to use. I think I'll share one of them. Um, but beer wants to be bourbon when it goes. Simply age a distilled it and let it age for a decade, you can kind of turn it into bourbon. The hops kind of get in the way of distilling spirits, but Beer wants to be bourbon when it goes out. So it's very, it was a very logical progression. Hops get in the way. That's one way to describe brewing. I love it. 
Um, yeah, I've always wanted to ask you this question. Apologies if I have before. I can't remember if I have. But you know, there was a question, and I feel like it's maybe dissipated a little bit more in recent time. But a couple of years ago, there was a big debate about whether or not there's uh, terroir in whiskey. And of course, you just mentioned wine, where terroir means just about everything or a lot of things in uh, wine. But in whiskey, is there terroir? Do you consider there to be such a thing as terroir in whiskey? Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I probably explain that anyways. So we have, uh, for example, one, one way to sort of justify that or to um, validate it is that we have experimented with the same recipe as tests at different facilities. And they turn out differently. And there's a whole bunch of factors in my mind that drive that. In our process, we are creating alcohol yeast, but we've got, for example, in Bardstown, a lot of carbon steel fermenters. And in general, carbon steel fermenters get pitted, they're hard to clean, or sterilize, I should say. We, of course, keep our equipment very clean. But associated with that is a presence of some lactic acid bacteria that are an extremely important part of our process. Um, we make a sour mash mostly, not entirely, but mostly. And some of the flavors that are created by those bacteria are extremely important, provide layers of complexity. And they will be different from distillery to distillery. I also think that, though arguable if this is really a terroir issue, but how the still runs. And, um, and that's a huge factor. I think also where we store our products is a incredibly important factor. And here's a really good example. We, um, every so often, will do a special release. We refers to Barstown. We did a 12-year-old release. It was actually just for our boys. But what it was, it was an eight, first of all, it was an eight-and-a-half-year-old whiskey that was brought down in the warehouse uh, for a single-barrel tasting. Those barrels were not picked. They stayed in that warehouse on the first floor. We had a very cool, very damp warehouse for an additional four and a half years. Initially, the proof went up from zero to eight and a half years. And then between eight and a half years, almost 13 years, it went down because the humidity was a little bit higher in this warehouse. It was cooler. And when we tasted those barrels, it was unbelievable. They smelt in the same way that particular warehouse and different warehouses have different smells oh. uh, for a variety of reasons. And I feel that is a important con contribution to terroir as well. So, yes, I believe there is terroir. You know, ben, we haven't even talked about the grains, where they're grown, and um, what microclimates might be experienced. You know, what nu nutrients are in the soil. You know, that's a huge issue for the grape growers. I don't hear about that as much from the grain growers. But you understand how plants grow and how they pick up their nutrients. Absolutely. There's terroir all Absolutely. Great answer. I'm also of the opinion that there's such a thing as whiskey terroir. I, I do understand the counter argument. Uh, it's just, uh, it, argued most loudly, perhaps, by Robin Robinson, the great whiskey writer, who always thinks that distillation, he calls it a catalytic process where it kind of eliminates terroir. I don't know if I buy that, but it's certainly something to consider. Uh, last question here, Danny. Before I let you go back to your very busy schedule, is just your thoughts on the bourbon boom and where it stands. I know you kind of already uh, hinted at this a little bit, but your thoughts about how much, uh, where we are in the bourbon boom and what the future holds for it. 
Well, that I, I, I do not have a crystal ball, but when one looks at the demand, I, I think, again, there's a long runway. And I think that, you know, some products out there are better than others. And I think that there's a lot of moving parts here. I think the consumer is getting much more educated on the process, where the products are coming from. I think their palates are getting more educated and they're able to discern subtle differences and different flavors. And I think that the cocktail industry is, is a really fascinating part of our industry. <clears throat> and the art and the craftiness that can be done with cocktails is, is wonderful. I, I, I um, do a lot of uh, cocktails on my own. I, I find it to be, you know, the sounds of making a cocktail, the visual appearance, type of ice it's used, type of glassware, the history, the origins. So I, I think there's a lot of opportunity. You know, that is one that also encourages great expression. So the product itself, it's got a lot of runway. Again, consumers will get more educated. So I think we've got a ways to go. I am very optimistic about it. I am in complete agreement, and I always joke. I'll get worried about bourbon when people stop asking me, if is bourbon a whiskey? And I probably get asked that question once a week. I, it makes me want to make T-shirts that say bourbon is whiskey with the is italicized. I think I could sell these. Uh, but thank you, Danny, so much. I appreciate you uh, coming on our podcast, taking the time for this. And it was hey, uh, yeah, it was great running into you at Bourbon Classic. Again, a wonderful festival, and I certainly uh, encourage everybody to look into Bourbon Classic for next year. That's one that gives some uh, real good deep dives into all of the top whiskey brands. Thank you again to all of our listeners for tuning in to another episode of our On and Off podcast. And until our next episode, cheers. Thanks so much. I appreciate your time, and I enjoy talking to you. Absolutely. If you enjoyed the On and Off podcast, please hit the subscribe button. Also, you can find more great content at cheersonline.com and beveragedynamics.com, including recipes, product reviews, and interviews with the movers and shakers of the beverage alcohol industry. You can also sign up for our free weekly e-newsletters for both publications on our websites. Cheers. Cheers.